Good evening. This is Bezik on Stocks. I'm your host, Ian Bezik. As always, nothing on the show is investment advice. Everything here is for education and entertainment purposes only. And with that out of the way, good evening. Thank you all for joining once again. Uh, interesting week in the market. Definitely first three 1% or more updates for the S&P 500 in quite a while. So uh, quite a little rally. Uh, consider me skeptical in terms of what we've seen so far uh, we've seen interest rates go up even more. The Fed seems intent on hiking rates for quite a while, so the market seems to be trying to fight the Fed. And One of the first things I learned as a young trader, young investor, was never go against the Fed. And the Fed said, Powell said pretty clearly that, that their tools for fighting inflation hadn't worked up until now, and so they were going to take more measures to try to keep the economy in check. And he specifically said that we need to reduce demand in the economy to help get through the inflationary issues now, so... I find the market's reaction at the moment a little perplexing, but eh, we were oversold quite a bit, so I guess that makes sense. Stocks are recovering a little bit, uh, but uh, consider me skeptical that that was the ultimate low for the market. Uh, that said, there's always bargains to buy, uh, even if we're in the midst of a bear market that will carry on for a little while longer, which would be my general thesis. Um, so that's what we'll be covering tonight. I think there's a group of high-quality compounder stocks that are getting sold off, some of them with more merit than others. And that leads to some interesting opportunities. Uh, one programming note, I usually intend to have the show at 8 o'clock Eastern, but uh, where I live, we don't celebrate daylight savings time. So unbeknownst to me, the clock had switched uh, up there. Uh, so that's why we're starting at 9 tonight. But I'm happy to go back to 8 o'clock Eastern if that's what people prefer. Uh, just leave a comment on Twitter in the member chat or whatever, what time works best for everyone. But uh, I intend to keep the show going at 8 o'clock Eastern, so uh, sorry for the scheduling error on my part. Uh, uh, so yeah, with that out of the way, let's get to the topic tonight. Uh, High-quality compounders, I would say, I view them as a group of stocks. They're not really part of one, they're not one sector, one industry or anything, uh, but I'd say they're a style in the sense that we usually talk about growth stocks and value stocks, and there's always the, the debate between growth and value. Uh, I don't really like that debate because uh, sometimes people get the sense that growth stocks are all speculative and risky and all, but there's obviously very many good growth companies and value. People get the perception that it's all deep value, cigar butts, out of favor stuff that uh, doesn't work anymore, but there's a lot of good value companies as well. And often companies will switch from being a growth company to a value company and sometimes from vice versa. Uh, and so I find those labels to be incomplete in terms of, uh, people say, I only buy growth stocks or only buy value stocks, and I think that closes people's minds off to a lot of good opportunities. Uh, so I would say that people should look at more more labels for companies, and I'd say that the compounders is an interesting label in terms of the companies that are very high quality, that consistently grow earnings and revenues uh, regardless of the economic climate. They tend to not be in cyclical industries, uh, but you can find them in everywhere from kind of software would probably be the one of the leading examples, but then you've got uh, your consumer staples that tend to grow consistently over time. A lot of industrial companies would be compounders, um, some kind of luxury goods, consumer discretionary names. Uh, you can find a variety of stuff there. Uh, I'd say Fundsmith, which is a European uh, British fund that has been the best performing mutual fund over there for the past decade, would be a good example of a mutual fund that focuses on compounders, their top holdings would be names like Microsoft, Novo Nordisk, L'Oreal, Estee Lauder, uh, McCormick, Intuit, uh, LVMH. 
to give you a sense of the kind of names they own. So some software, some consumer staples, some luxury goods. Uh, and that fund has just been getting hammered uh, over the past few months, just year to date. Through the end of February, they were down 13%, which was more than double the decline of the the their benchmark. And historically, this fund has beaten the index almost every year since it was founded in 2011. So it's been very abrupt seeing them lose more than twice as much as the market overall. Some of their holdings just over the past three months out of their top 10 holdings into it, the software company is down 36%. Uh, Estee Lauder is down more than 30%. Uh, L'Oreal is down 20 uh, IDEX is down 20 That's a lab laboratory company. LVMH is down 19 Microsoft's down 18 To give you a sense, just the destruction on all of these different kinds of names that are uh, different industries, different business models, uh, and yet they're kind of all owned by the same people. And I would say that these are what we'd say are kind of hedge fund hotel stocks, and that hedge funds own them in a much higher proportion than the index as a whole. Hedge funds talk to each other. People read the same research. Kind of they get the same ideas, and so people buy these companies and think they have an edge on the market, and they probably do because all those companies I just listed off are very high-quality companies, companies you'd want to own for the long term. Uh, however, sometimes they get too popular. Many of those companies I listed have been trading over 35, 40, sometimes 45 times earnings recently. And so like any strategy, when too many people gravitate to it, uh, it reduces the overall returns. Hedge funds have owned these stocks and they've gone up year after year after year for many years. You read Fundsmith's letters and it will say, our top performing stock in 2011 was Microsoft. Our top performing stock in 2012 was Microsoft. For like six years since Fundsmith has existed, like their top performing stock was Microsoft. And so people just get the sense that the stock can never go down. And then like anything, housing can't go down in 2008. So of course it goes down. Crashes, in fact. And there's this idea that the fangs were getting to be invincible. And so now like Facebook, uh, Meta, excuse me, has collapsed. And some of the other fangs have gone down a lot as well. And so... Any strategy that gets too popular, eventually you'll have a moment where uh, people's conviction is tested. And I think we're seeing that moment of, of testing of convictions in the compounder stocks. And so all of these stocks, regardless of their industry or sector, are really taking a walloping right now. Uh, but that gets my attention because these are very good quality companies, much better than the index. And they're down quite a bit. Uh, and I could make a case for a lot of stocks that I've pitched in the past uh, something like a brown foreman would fall in this category as well. But for tonight, two companies that are newer to the portfolio that I've just started buying in 2022. Uh, we'll start off with American Tower, and then I'll present on Echo Lab after that. And then I'll open the line for questions after I've presented on those two companies. So first off, what's American Tower? It's the world's largest telecommunications-focused REIT. Uh, it's, uh, you primarily know it for the large cell phone towers that you'll see uh, in towns or when you're driving, um, you build a, a American Tower, buys land, builds a tower, and then leases it out to your phone companies like AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile. Um, they also do towers for other uses like radio and television, broadcasting, government uses. Um, but primarily that, uh, it's a highly attractive industry because obviously the demand for data is going up and up and up. People, uh, smartphone People spend more time on their smartphones than ever. Uh, we use more data on our phones. Like streaming video wasn't really a thing on mobile six, seven years ago. Now, obviously, everyone has to have it. 5G will take data usage to another level. Internet of Things, 
like a lot of connected uh, devices, like now our fridge talks to the internet, all these different things that require more and more data. So the demand for this is just insatiable. So it's a great long-term growth market. Um, I think hedge funds have loved the sector, American Tower and their competitors. These have always been on the like hedge fund VIP list that Goldman Sachs puts out, kind of the stocks that hedge funds own the most of, because I know these are businesses that just grow and grow and grow. American Tower has been growing at like 14, 15% a year for more than a decade. Uh, the contracts are very uh, favorable to the company. Their shortest contracts are 10 years. They have contracts of up to 50 years with built-in inflation escalators. And so like once you get one of those tenants like AT&T or Verizon in there, I mean, they're just never leaving. It's amazing business model. Uh, but typically, I mean, American Tower has been priced expensively because people know it's a great business. Usually trades in an average of 25 times its funds uh, from operations, FFO. Oftentimes it's gone over 30x. If you follow REITs, people tend to prefer to pay under 20 times FFO and sometimes under 15 times. So American Tower is expensive compared to other REITs. Uh, Bulls would argue that it's worth the premium because one, it's growing very quickly, and two, it's much more stable than something like offices or shopping malls or things that were disrupted during the pandemic. Obviously, uh, the demand for mobile data didn't go anywhere during the pandemic and, in fact, is continuing to grow faster than ever. Um, let's see, American Tower, from 2008, it was generating $2 a share of FFO, and that's grown to more than $11 as of last year. So that's uh, 6x in 14 years, which is pretty amazing stuff. So like I said, it's trading, usually trades around 25 times FFO, which is expensive, but uh, bring up other REITs and you're not going to see six times growth of their core metric over uh, since the financial crisis. So amazing stuff. And on a normal valuation basis, 25 times the current FFO would take you to 285 for the stock compared to close to 244 today. That's a bit of a discount, not a huge discount, but the stock was trading at 300 like a month ago. So 240 is a lot better than 300. Um, I think just modeling the same FFO growth rate that they've had in the past, we get to $15 in 2025, which would put the stock at $350, uh, which is more than $100 upside from today. And include the dividend, you've got something very nice, interesting there. Um, and so I think the question people would ask is what could go wrong? Like, why are people selling off the stock? Uh, I think one big concern has been inflation. Um, probably the biggest uh, at least the most compelling argument you could make against the company here is that a lot of their contracts are structured, as I understand it, with a 3% inflation, uh, what's the word? Every year they get a 3% increase on their contracts, uh, and then the contracts go for 10 to 50 years. And so in a normal environment like we've been seeing where inflation was 1% or 2%, uh, getting a 3% increase every year was great. However, if inflation is going to run at 7% for the foreseeable future, getting 3% is not nearly as good. Uh, however, things aren't as grim as it might sound, just from how I presented that, uh, because the company earns ridiculous profit margins on a tower that has all three tenants. So in the U.S., that would be AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile would be your typical three. The company for a typical tower would earn $80,000 in revenue and have just $14,000 of operating expenses. So that's an 83% gross margin. And so you can see like, oh no, inflation's running out of control. Our costs might go from, let's call it $14,000 to $20,000 to run the tower. But when you're earning $80,000 from the top line and that 80,000 grows at 3% a year. So next year it'll be 82,500, the next year it'll be 85,000 and so on. 
and you only have fourteen thousand dollars of expenses it's like the the cost of inflation here is very low because you basically just built a tower and there's very very little to run it just some utilities uh maybe property taxes on the land and like some software to like monitor it in case somebody like tries to steal the copper from your building or something uh but the operating costs in these towers are virtually nil so the inflation of a very low cost is not a big deal which i think people are missing because they're focusing on the the top line is locked in at a, at a relatively low percentage uh but when you have so few costs it's not a big deal uh in terms of the balance sheet obviously they have a lot of debt so that's uh both good and bad in the good sense the value of debt goes down during an inflationary period so they'll have much less debt in in real dollar terms to deal with in the future as inflation continues uh but they may have to pay higher interest rates when they renew their debt so we'll see how that works out but they have a much better credit rating than the average REIT so i don't see any problems in terms of rolling their debt over uh going back to other potential issues people have worried that other people try to get into the industry uh primarily of the the specialized players there's only three which would be them crown castle and sba communications which are the largest three at least in the US you have uh, some regional players or people that have a lot of towers in one city and obviously there's some tower networks overseas uh however uh for the major three that's been that way for a while american tower has actually been outgrowing crown castle uh in recent years crown castle is the next biggest competitor so as long as american tower isn't losing share to them it's hard to see competition as a huge problem some people have pointed to just asking why don't the telecom companies build their own towers which is reasonable and they there's the big towers that the you probably recognize and then there's smaller like localized sites where people will put uh communications equipment say in a stadium or a concert venue or something which is uh where crown castle originally excelled and now you've seen companies like T-Mobile that are building their own kind of 5G networks inside their stadiums like there's a T-Mobile stadium in Phoenix I think or the the Rams stadium in LA where T-Mobile has built their own equipment rather than leasing from an American Tower or Crown Castle and that's a competitive risk to a concern to a degree I don't think it'll be a big deal because the operating margins like if T-Mobile just builds their own network they don't have any other tenants like AT&T isn't going to lease from T-Mobile directly and so you only have one tenant on those mini sites rather than the three and so the operating margins the operating efficiencies really disappear uh you want a third party like American Tower or Crown Castle to run these sites so that all three operators can all rent from the same place and reduce those uh redundant costs so i don't think you're going to see places like T-Mobile uh really interfere with the business model too much in terms of running out of growth potential in the US so you're running out of places to build new large sites uh there will be more opportunities to, to to deploy like the little concert venue or stadium type uh settings but the US is largely penetrated as a market same for Europe however there's still growth opportunities in Latin America and Africa to a large degree and there's also like I said a lot of little tower companies so just maybe operate in one town or one state and so American tower can continue uh, acquiring those generally that's very accretive it's a very good deal for american tower because their stock is highly valued on the stock exchange whereas if you're i don't know the radio tower company of utah you're not going to get much of a valuation because no one wants to manage a little business so american tower can come in uh, issue stock at a high valuation buy it and then immediately it kind of 
when the market capitalizes that, it creates value both for the selling uh, tower holder and for the shareholders. So I see a long runway to continue consolidating the industry. Um, like I said, I think the stock, based on its historical median valuation, is uh, 15, 20% undervalued here, and then you get double-digit growth on top of that every year. Uh, finally, you get the dividend, which people might look at the dividend starting off at 2.2% now and say that's not a high enough yield to matter. However, the company increases the dividend every single quarter, not every year, but every quarter. Like over the last year, it was 124 for one payment, 127 the next payment, 131 the next payment, 139 the next payment, and so on. So the yield grows very quickly. Uh, even just as recently as 2008, uh, 2018, excuse me, the quarterly payment was 75 cents, and now it's a dollar 40. So that's nearly a double in under five years. Uh, so don't underestimate how quickly the yield grows when you're growing your funds from operations at 15% a year. The dividend yield is also the highest in the history of the company. Historically, it's yielded about 1.6%. So the 2.2% it's paying now is a considerable increase from that. So yeah, I see this as a high quality stock. It's obvious why hedge funds have owned this in mass over the years, why it's one of their favorite names. But now that the hedge funds are taking some pain, their FANG stocks have blown up, their software names have gone way down, uh, they're having to reduce risk across the board. And so they're selling stocks like American Tower that there's no real fundamental reason to be selling. Like I said, maybe you can make an argument that inflation hurts them to a degree, but I think it's overblown, particularly to the degree that the stock has fallen. So I think American Tower is just getting thrown out uh, because it's part of this group of compounder stocks that are under fire. That's why I like it here. I think it's fallen too far. And yeah, should be heading back towards the high 200s or maybe even 300 over the next six to 12 months. So if anyone has any questions on that pitch in particular, feel free to hop on the line now. Or if no one has any questions, I'll go on to the Echo Lab thesis. All right, anyone want to jump on? All right, I'll move on to presenting the second idea then, which is for one second, where are my notes? All right, here we go. Um, for Ecolab, uh, ticker ECL, which is the world's largest company uh, for cleaning, hygiene, and sanitation. Uh, you probably don't know the company just as a consumer, uh, but like when you go to, I don't know, the bathroom at a chain restaurant, there's a good chance that it will say Ecolab, like on the soap stuff there. Um, but that's just one small bit of the business. It does everything from food service, which is kind of their... They're, what they made the company on to water treatment, pest control, laundry services for hotels uh, across dozens of lines of businesses. But that's kind of some of the the flagship things that they do. Uh, but it's a huge business, more than $10 billion a year and more than five times as large as their nearest competitor. Uh, so a tremendous company in terms of its size and scope uh, that people really don't know much about, as far as I can tell. Seems to be a very underappreciated company for something that's as important and as large as it is. Uh, to give you a concrete example of the business, uh, think about McDonald's in the U.S. Every McDonald's is serviced all their cleaning from Ecolab. So what is that, like 10,000 McDonald's, I believe. Uh, all the cleaning equipment for the kitchens, like all the stoves and all that. And then the bathrooms, the dining areas, all that's Ecolab. It's an exclusive uh, supplier contract with McDonald's. Um, so that gives you a sense, and they have these with dozens of the Fortune 500 companies where Echolab is their only provider for hygiene, sanitation, and so on. 
um, yeah, food service is where they they originally made their their money. Uh, obviously, a huge business taking care of restaurants around the world. Yeah, regulators are paying more and more attention to food safety. Cities like New York have their food safety, the sanitation scales where you have a big letter on the door that says like, A, this is a safe restaurant. Like B, there's some problems. C, like be really careful and so on. And so restaurants, like it's a scarlet letter if they get a bad grade in terms of their sanitation. So you go to Echo Lab and say like, we need to clean the stuff up, get it to, to specifications. And they've got decades of experience getting restaurants and other institutional clients to where they need to be. Um, yeah, so food service, large, stable business, uh, obviously got hit during COVID. I think this is part of the misconception around the stock. People assumed, oh, you have hygiene and sanitation in basically in your business description. You must have made a ton of money in the pandemic. And no, actually, they lost money in the pandemic because they sell tons of stuff to hotels to airlines, to restaurants, to a bunch of stuff that closed down during the pandemic. And so, yeah, and they gave huge price breaks to the stuff that remained open. Like they were giving away free uh, free sanitizer and cleaning materials and all to some of their customers just so they would stay in business. Companies like Cruise Lines obviously didn't have money to pay them up front. And so Ecolab, you did so we'll lose money now to make more money over the life of our contracts with these people. Um, but yeah, people have been kind of pushing back since I first published the thesis saying why aren't the numbers better if this is a cleaning company and they just had COVID it's like yeah you need to understand that the, this was actually harmed by COVID and now they're recovering and now the numbers are going to get a lot better in 2022 and 2023 um, but slightly off topic uh, getting back to the main point I think food service and the institutional business is kind of the largest and most important uh, however, uh, honestly, what I find most intriguing about this company is the manufacturing and an industrial angle. Ecolab has a large business in water treatment, which I think is checks all sorts of right boxes in terms of uh, what ESG is focusing on, that we need to conserve our resources. We need less waste, uh, recycle what we can. Ecolab has a huge business in terms of helping factories and uh, resource treatment, uh, like refinery, stuff like that, reuse their water, their spent water, instead of uh, letting it run off into the local environment, which reduces pollution, but also uh, improves uh, the resiliency of the local area. If you've been to states like Colorado or Arizona or Utah, there's obviously huge water shortages. Uh, water is very scarce. You're seeing a lot of like farmers go out of business because they can't irrigate reliably. You're seeing cities not give out any more housing permits because there just isn't any water there. So a company like Ecolab that can go to, a let's say, a winery in Colorado and say, hey, we're going to help you reuse your water and you'll use 30% less water. That's the sort of thing that is very ESG friendly. Uh, that winery or whoever that's doing that business is going to get tax benefits from the local municipality. It's kind of a win-win for everyone. You get to improve your environmental score. You get local favor with uh, the mayor and whoever locally. And then governments will subsidize a lot of that. So it's a, I see that as a huge uh, growth opportunity for Ecolab. And their CEO agrees. Uh, where's the quote? One second. The, yeah, so from uh, ex-executive of Ecolab's uh, water business, he said, quote, Ecolab is quickly becoming a company that helps customers manage their water use. As global water scarcity becomes a greater issue, Ecolab and Christopher Beck, the CEO, is passionate about trying to help preserve water on a global scale. 
uh, Ecolab is very focused no matter what the business is, whether it's a restaurant or a paper mill, how do we reduce its water footprint? How do we help the customer still get excellent performance and create ma advantages by managing water better? So I think this business in particular is going to be very strong in the in the world that we have with ESG and focusing on reducing waste and all. Yeah, and so I think that's been underappreciated. Uh, in terms of their business, people look at the food service, which is which is great. It's a large, important business. However, what they're doing with with power, with natural resources, now with data centers, Ecolab is huge in terms of providing the the water uh, management for data uh, data centers because they need tons of cooling. Uh, that's had a big impact on the environment in some places where uh, companies like Facebook have built dozens of data centers in the middle of nowhere and kind of caused local environmental problems. So you come in and you say, hey, we can reduce your water usage 30%. We can reduce your power usage from, from discharging less water. I think these are solutions that will have a very long runway to grow. And they also support a high multiple for the stock because every ESG fund in the world wants to own a company like this. Uh, it's just it's the sort of thing that... Uh, uh, I don't want to say the word greenwashing because that's a bad word, but it's the sort of stock that helps uh, funds improve their scores in terms of looking responsible. And I think Ecolab is actually making a positive difference in the world, but it's the sort of company that people can own. Uh, if you don't want to buy like Tesla or some of these uh, companies that appear to be ESG but don't actually make much in the way of profits, like this is the sort of company that is making a difference in the world and uh, is also uh, <laughs> producing uh, total returns for shareholders. Um, let's get to competition. I think this is another thing that people don't really appreciate is the scope of Ecolab's advantage. Like I said, it's a $12 billion a year business in terms of revenues. Their next largest competitor, Diversity, is only $2 billion a year of revenues. So Ecolab is six times as large. I believe the third largest uh, competitor is Rentokill, which is primarily a pest control company, but also has uh, moved into Ecolab's kind of food service area to some degree, but I believe they're $2 billion in revenues as well, and then there's really no one else even over the $1 billion mark. Uh, so Ecolab has an incredible level of control over this market. If you're a large player, a Nestle, a Coca-Cola, a McDonald's, and you want a one-stop solution for all your stores across the world, it's pretty much just Ecolab or Diversity. Diversity has been mismanaged. It was owned by private equity for many years. From my understanding, they were hardly giving their their staff uh, much money in terms of uh, trying to, their salespeople were having trouble coming up with money to travel and pitch people on the product. And all. it was just, you know, penny pinching as private equity does. Uh, diversity went public last year with a ton of debt because obviously private equity takes out all the cash they can get for themselves and then they leave a, a debt laden company for the public. Diversity stock has dropped by more than half since the IPO last year. So I think that gives you a sense of how uh, Ecolab's largest competitor is doing, which would be not well. Uh, and so yeah, you've got the industry leader by just a ridiculous margin, 12 billion to 2 billion. Uh, and interestingly, it's only 8% of the total market uh, because so much of this industry is still fragmented. You'll have just a little uh, sanitation company for one state or one city or one region. Uh, and so Ecolab will be acquiring these companies for many years to come, like whatever, so you've got a, a company that does uh, kitchen hygiene in Indiana, and then you hit retirement age and you want to sell, you're going to sell to Ecolab or Diversity, or maybe Rent-A-Kill, but probably just one of those three. And so once again, kind of like with American Tower buying up the other little tower companies, uh, if you're selling a little business that serves one city or one state, 
people aren't going to pay a very high multiple for it. But if you're Echolab, you can issue stock at 35 times earnings and then go buy a company for, I don't know, six times earnings and get massive accretion to the shareholders. And that's a huge part of Echolab's growth story over the years has been successful M&A over and over and over, not just in the U.S., Echolab's everywhere in the world, Europe, Africa, Asia, it's everywhere, which is it's part of their appeal. You can you go to Coca-Cola or Nestle and say, we'll service you anywhere in the world, and then they can do it. Um, I think another interesting part of the story is that it actually earns higher profit margins selling to big companies than it does to little companies, which is probably the opposite of what you'd expect. Uh, like I was uh, reading an account from one Echolab uh, salesperson in Southeast Asia who said that when they're selling to like Marriott and other high-end hotels, they can charge 30% more than if they're selling to a hotel run by a local uh, proprietor, say in Singapore, for example. And that's because the local hotel is just owned, like the mom and pop will buy the cheapest chemicals they can find for cleaning or the cheapest laundry service they can get or the cheapest uh, water uh, water treatment because Ecolab offers all of those. Uh, but the mom and pop shop will do whatever to save a dime. Whereas Marriott just says we want everything to be spotless, the sheets need to be perfect, the kitchen, there can't be a single cockroach, and so on, and so Echolab can charge a lot more selling to the high end than it can to the low end. Uh, and something, I haven't seen anyone mention this uh, besides myself, as uh, coming out of the pandemic, many of these mom and pops around the world, unfortunately, went out of business, uh, particularly in the hospitality industry, where Echolab has a huge footprint, uh, just because when you're a hotel, if you're a mom and pop hotel and you have no customers for 18 months, you're not going to survive. And so a lot of those places have closed down. A lot of mom and pop restaurants have disappeared. Your chain restaurants have gotten bigger. Your chain hotels, like your Marriott's, will have more market share than ever. And that's all Echolab business. And like I said, Echolab earns a higher profit margin on that. So you'll have both a larger business and a higher profit business at that as these places reopen. As I mentioned, Echolab has been discounting a lot of goods to, to industries that got hammered in the pandemic. So if you're looking at their earnings now, they're significantly under-earning what they could, can earn or could earn if they were uh, if they were being, uh, what's the word? If they were trying to squeeze every dollar out of their customers that they could. And that's uh, something that I've heard that diversity was doing. Diversity was not being as friendly in terms of dealing with their counterparties, uh, their customers. They ran into trouble during COVID, but Echolab was just giving people stuff and letting them pay later, giving people discounts because they value the long-term contracts, uh, which I think that's the difference between having private equity ownership and being a public company that is focused on shareholder returns for decades. Um, yeah, so Echolab, yeah, like I said, they've dramatically under-earned, but going forward, uh, they see analysts, uh, sorry, they see earnings growing at 15% plus the next two years, getting back to normal as uh, businesses like hotels, cruises, restaurants come back to normal. And so that gets us to $7 of earnings in 2024. Um, and I mean, just assuming they hit $7, which might be a little understated in my view, but assuming they hit that, it would be 24 times earnings on that. Historically, I collapsed at 35 to 40 times earnings. And yeah, I've seen people ask why pay, because it's still trading at 35 times this year's earnings, which like I said, I think they're under earning now. But whatever, people can uh, disagree with my view there if they want. Uh, however, people would say, why pay 35 times earnings? But those things traded for 35 or 40 times earnings for most of the last decade uh, for the reasons I said. Basically, their only major competitor has been severely mismanaged. The business is indispensable. Like 
I mean, how would you run a McDonald's or a Marriott or something without these cleaning services? It's just, you can't even think of how you would replace this business, like how you'd get rid of it. And like I said, their only competitor of any international scope is, is poorly run and floundering at the moment. And so you just have this monopoly on an absolutely essential business that will grow just as the world economy grows. And I think they've got some specific interesting growth tailwinds coming out of the pandemic that people aren't really paying attention to. And so getting this near monopoly on a, on a global service uh, of this quality, I think, I think I would even be willing to pay for it at 35 times normal earnings. But like I said, I think earnings are understated now. Uh, like 2023, they're looking at 17% earnings growth and only 6% revenue growth, which goes to show you the margins are coming back. And the next year, 6% revenue growth, 14% earnings growth. So once again, you see profit margins coming back as all these places come back online. I think we, by buying it today, we're taking advantage. We're seeing where the market's going to be in a year or two. But some hedge fund, somebody like a fundsmith that's down 15 or 20% on the year already, they don't have the luxury of sitting around until 2023 or 2024 and seeing when the story's going to turn around. They need the stock to work next quarter so they, their investors don't panic. And so I think there's kind of a time arbitrage right now in terms of we know that this business is going to be bigger and stronger than ever in two or three years. However, a lot of the shareholder base was momentum, kind of fast money hedge funds that just saw the stock goes up every year, earnings go up every year. It's been a consistent winner. Uh, and now now that it stopped winning, I think, how high was, uh, let me check the chart. I think the stock was like two, 240. How high was it? Uh, one second. Doo, doo, doo. Yeah, so the stock was 240 in December. And then it hit 160 last week. And so, yeah, any momentum fund that owned that, I mean, you can't keep owning a stock. If you're a momentum fund that's judged on quarterly or monthly results, you can't keep owning a stock that's suddenly gone from 240 to 160. And at 160, Echolab was back to where it traded, like in 2018. So that was four years of gains uh, for funds that had been holding it. And so just very few hedge funds are going to be willing to sit through that sort of decline. But uh, obviously, we as long-term investors can can deal with that. Uh, management is also uh, appears to be enjoying the situation. They just announced a share repurchase on Monday. They'll be buying back more than 1% of the company over the next quarter, which I would like to see them buy back even more. But I'm always happy when I see management step in uh, after their stock's gone down 30% and say, hey, we're going to start buying now. They weren't buying back at the peak they were like okay we're waiting now now the best use of our capital is repurchasing our stock rather than doing more m a which i think is an interesting uh decision on their part and aligns with my view of it as well that at this price Ecolab's best investment going forward is just uh buying more stock in themselves and yeah i tend to agree with them uh, yeah it's also uh kind of like american tower a uh, few people would buy it for the dividend today. The dividend yield is just uh, one and a quarter percent. However, it is a dividend aristocrat, 29 consecutive years of dividend hikes. Uh, dividend has historically grown fairly quickly, so it doesn't pay a lot upfront, but it's your classic growth and in income investment in that the dividend goes up every year by a considerable degree. And so easy to hold on to for the long term. Like I said, I just don't, I don't know how you would even begin to try to displace this company. The the level of scale that they have and the level of contracts they have, like when you're the global supplier only for McDonald's, for Nestle, for these sorts of huge players, I, I don't know how you would even try to disrupt that. And uh, as it turns out, their their largest competitors is so poorly run. 
<laughs> so that makes it even better. And then uh, finally, like I said, it's just 8% of the market is them. And so much of it is just these tiny little mom and pop chemical companies or distribution companies that just serve one market or one little region. And so the M&A footprint on this is just going to be huge. I think they can keep growing at double digit rates for, I don't know, at least 20 or 30 years. Uh, the overall market they serve has grown from what, from 40 billion, I believe it was 20 years ago to over 150 billion now. So serving a huge market, market that grows faster than GDP. They're only 8% of it, but they're absolutely dominating the business. Management has been exceptionally good at capital allocation up until now. Uh, oh, yeah, and finally, because uh, people are commenting on the top line numbers, they spun off their oil and gas. They do, they did water treatment for the oil and gas industry. Obviously, that business uh, kind of collapsed after 2014 when the price of oil crashed. And so I forget the year, I think 2018, they spun that off. Uh, it's now a public separately traded company. And so that took away a lot of their top line revenues, but uh, lower margin revenues. I believe that's a $3 billion business now. And so if you're looking at their top line numbers and like, and they did 14 billion of revenues a few years ago and 14 billion last year, like why is there no growth? It's because all of the, the oil and gas water treatment and cleaning services for that uh, went to a spinoff. So I think that's something that a lot of people missed and I should have included it in my initial report because the company reports uh, spinoff adjusted numbers, but I should have highlighted that in my initial report. Uh, but anyway, yes, that's the case for Ecolab. I think it's a dominant kind of almost a monopoly sort of company uh, that will get a lot stronger coming out of COVID. People misinterpreted the impact of COVID. COVID was very bad for the business, whereas people might have just seen sanitation and hygiene and thought it would have been good or at least neutral. Uh, but now you're going to see profit margins go up very quickly. Earnings are going to come back in a hurry. People are going to start seeing these plus 15% earnings prints next year or two and i think the stock goes back to new all-time highs which is uh, way up from here so let's make case for echolab happy to open the line now echolab american tower or any other kind of compounder company that you find interesting that's sold off lately happy to take your questions or comments all right gary Hi, Ian. Uh, thanks for doing this again. Mm -hmm. Good evening. Hope you're having a great one. Yeah, um, I have a couple questions. Uh, one of my questions is just regarding kind of where we are here with the pullback, which looks a lot like a bear market in terms of the types of companies that you think might put in a long-term bottom now versus other ones that you think would be more likely to bottom later? Um, and if the compounders or uh, th there's a certain class of types of companies you think that we should look at now for long-term? Yeah, that's a good question. I like how you presented that. Um, I think unfortunately, as far as the compounders go, well, fortunately, uh, I don't know, I'm twisting my words now. Um, if you want to buy more, I think if the bear market continues, compounders will keep getting cheaper uh, just because of the, the structural behavior we're seeing in terms of these hedge funds that have been outperforming for many years. That Think of your hedge fund that maybe has 40% of their book in FANG and other software stocks, and then the other 60% in these names like American Tower and Echolab and Brown Foreman, these high-quality plays in other industries. 
And just uh, if the tech stocks keep going down, these funds are just going to keep getting redeemed. And so they'll have to keep selling their, their compounder stocks, which is going to be your Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, so on. But also their names like, like American Tower. Um, so, yeah, I think compounders could keep going down if the bear market continues. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not ready to say this is the bottom for, for compounder type stocks. Uh, however, a lot of them are trading below their, their historical median valuations now. So I'm willing to buy, but I wouldn't be surprised if I'm still buying at lower prices six or 12 months from now. Um, in terms of what might bottom right here, um, that's a good question. I'm not sure. The stuff that's working now, obviously, is not near the lows. Like I think things like the consumer staple uh, companies like your Hormel's and Hershey's and McCormick's, and that sort of stuff can keep going up. This is a good environment for them, particularly a company like Hershey that has raised prices a lot faster than inflation. I think something like that can keep going up, uh, but it's already up. So, I mean, I'm not, we're not buying a bottom if we buy something like that here. So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what would be on the 52-week low list today. That This would be the, the exact bottom of the move. Uh, yeah, stuff that will outperform in this, like banks and insurance companies that will do well with rising rates. They're not at their lows now, so. I'm not sure. Okay. It's an interesting question. Yeah. Okay. Regarding Echo Lab, um, do you think that uh, Airbnb and that model is a threat to them? Yeah, it certainly is to the to the hotel part of the business. Because yeah, people that are just uh, doing Airbnb at home are just going to buy cleaning products from Clorox or whoever instead of from a, a commercial provider. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's a it's a valid risk. Uh, some Echo Lab businesses have declined sharply over the years. Like they do, one of their big, their first big industrial business was in wood pulp and timber, like sawmills and uh, stuff for the housing industry, and that's declined a lot as as people have switched to other construction materials. I mean, we still use wood to a significant degree, but much less than in the past. Paper, like newspapers, we don't really do newspapers anymore. So, like, whole Ecolab businesses have largely disappeared. They got rid of the oil and gas business when that one went south. Uh, but they've added, like, they brought in the data centers. Uh, they're making a big push with uh, biomedical, like, uh, biotech labs. Those require tons of high-level sanitation and water treatment. So I think they'll always be able to add new industries to offset uh, what's going away. Management has been very proactive in terms of uh, moving into new areas of growth. So, But yes, I think you're right. Hotels may may decline. Although, like I said, I think you'll see more share going to people like Marriott instead of no-name hotel next to, I don't know, next to a truck stop on the highway. It will be branded in the future because I think as hotels kind of shrink in general, people will trust the brands more than the, the mom-and-pop ones. So that might uh, offset it to some degree. Okay. And then I'm curious if this is a company you think could be a hundred banger. Uh, Echo Lab? No, not a, probably not a hundred banger because I think the market cap's already like 50 billion. So it would have to get to several trillion, which is probably not going to happen. But uh, I think it could 10x over, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. But 100x probably, it's too large already. Uh, if Diversity, their competitor, if Diversity hired competent management uh, and started making a serious run against Ecolab, that one could be a hundred bagger because that one's market cap is, that one's small. Uh, and I would, I'd actually like to own Diversity as well, but they need to, uh, uh, market cap's two billion. Yeah, so that one could be a hundred bagger uh, if they hire competent management, but 
that stock's gone from 19 to 7 since it's been public, which gives you a sense of how well Echolab's leading competitor is doing. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, anyone else want to hop on? Greg. You are up, Greg. Um, you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Good evening. Hey, good evening. Yeah, I hardly get a chance, so I'm happy I can get on here. Um, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but it sounds to me that when they got rid of that oil business in 2018, they got rid of it at a uh, low point, which sounds like a poor decision to get rid of something when it's in in a bear market. And if, if that's the case, then how often do you know that they make such bad decisions? Yeah, yeah, that's a totally fair question and a good point. Um, yeah, I think uh, in the sense that it was spun off, so shareholders uh, were still still had ownership of it. So I don't think it ultimately harms long-term investors in that uh, when you spin off a business, now you own two separate entities. Uh, but a lot of people... One, it was just it was hurting their operating margins because that business was doing very poorly, and so uh, yeah, it was just a drag on their overall results. And two, the company is focused very heavily on being an ESG-friendly company, and so having one of your largest sources of revenue being from oil and gas was causing a lot of potential investors to avoid the company because they said, "Oh, this is a company focused on 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 water, on improving water quality," and yet one of their biggest users is these fossil fuel companies. And so I think in terms of being good for making the stock more marketable in terms of a lot of funds that could buy the company uh, once they got rid of the fossil fuel exposure. Uh, but you're absolutely right. They they should have spun it off when it was at a higher valuation. Uh, I understand management's reasoning for it, but but I would you make a very valid point. All right. And, and, and a quick private note, uh, my wife's Ukrainian and now her Ukrainian's favorite people are Polish, so she likes it. Ah, that's good to hear. All right, that's it. All right, thank you. Always a pleasure. All right, anyone else? Leave the line open for a few more seconds if anyone else wants to hop on. All right, yeah, and then I'll just say um, I'm always interested what you guys would find interesting for topics for future calls. So either in the member chat or on Twitter, just let me know if you have some topic that you'd like the, me to cover for a future episode. I'm always happy to, to hear your suggestions. And with that, I want to thank you for joining tonight on this, on this episode of Bezik on Stocks, and we'll do it again next week. So have a good evening. Bye-bye.